dit 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 da 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 dit 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 da 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 dit 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 yes some of you will understand the message i sent maybe there's a few others of you who are thinking oh that was a bit strange what is he doing but this is a strange message worth knowing uh, the language that I used is called Morse code. It's, uh, it was used for decades to send messages over a radio signal. It uses a pattern of short and long uh, pulses, right? Dit and da. Uh, in English, what I spelled was SOS. Thank you, Sam. Uh, maybe you're more familiar with that message. You've heard of SOS before. It's not an acronym. It doesn't mean anything except exactly what it means, which is help. It's easy to remember, it's easy to say, it reads the same frontwards, backwards, upside down. You can, you know, tap it on a wall, you can shine it with a flashlight, you can shine it with a mirror, you can make it with driftwood on a desert island, and <laughs> everyone everywhere should know what you're saying. I need help. Well, I like to think of this psalm as an SOS. It's a bit longer and more emotional, of course, but uh, it is a desperate plea for help. So how do we make this plea? Maybe you're in trouble right now. Or maybe you at least anticipate being in trouble at some point in your life. And I bet you have at least a friend or two who's in trouble right now. Well, like so many psalms, this psalm gives us words. It shows us how to make an SOS to God. And so we begin with the basis of the plea. My first point, the basis of the plea. When you show up for a job interview, what do you need to show? What is the basis for your plea for work? Your resume, right? Your experience, your transferable skills, your trusty track record. But that is not how David begins his plea. He asks for help on the basis of mercy. Right there in the beginning, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. He needs mercy. And, you know, it's not simply that David doesn't have a good resume. He actually has a bad resume. Uh, he's got a list of firings and failings, how he stole from that job, constantly disrespected the boss at that job, and made a co-worker disappear at that job. Right? And this is actually... Uh, the resume of all mankind. That's what David says in verse 2. He says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one has a resume that will allow them to ask God for help. All fall short. This may seem like an obvious point to some of you, but it is so basic and so easy to forget. We need to be reminded of it. It is not 
the good people of the world who can ask God for help. It's not the bad people of the world who can ask God for help because we are all in the same depraved boat. It is those who ask God for mercy who can approach him for help. It's so easy to begin to feel like, I deserve this when praying to God. And many Christians pray to God for years without ever admitting that their requests stand only on a pillar of mercy. Look at verse 1 again. David, he's in this tricky spot, you see. He wants God to be faithful and righteous. He, he appeals to God's faithfulness, his righteousness. Right there, the end of verse 1. Because he knows that he, he needs a God who is, uh, keeps his promises and is totally good, who is faithful and is righteous. That's the God who can help him. And yet, right, he also needs God to make an exception because God has also promised, he has also said he is faithful to judge unrighteousness. And David is unrighteous. This is the tricky situation we're all in if we want God's help. And the only one who can resolve that and fulfill God's mercy and his justice is Jesus. We actually have a way of recognizing this very thing in our prayers, that, that our prayers are based on God's mercy. We say, in Jesus' name, at the end of our prayers, right? It's this abbreviated way of saying, uh, God, I know I can only ask these things because of the mercy that has been shown to me through Jesus. So I'm making this prayer built on that foundation. Maybe you need to be reminded why you should pray in Jesus' name. It's not just something that religious people say. It has meaning. It means something. Even David says towards the end of his prayer, verse 11, for your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. He, he doesn't know all the details of this Messiah, how he will redeem him, but he knows that God will redeem. And so he trusts in that promise that God will redeem his people. And he rests on the Lord's mercy. That's where you need to rest as well. But what then are the parts of David's plea? So this is my second point, the parts of his plea. The first thing to notice is David's honesty, his honesty. He does not hide what he is feeling, and he is clear about what he is asking for. He wants to be heard. He wants to be answered. He wants mercy, as we already looked at. He wants to be delivered, and he wants guidance. He's quite clear. He repeats these requests multiple times. Thirteen explicit requests he makes, if you dig through this passage. And if you were to go and just underline all the verbs, you would immediately see these things pop out. He wants to be heard and answered, and he wants mercy, deliverance, and guidance. But in between all these requests, he also lays out his feelings, and this helps us because he uses words and descriptions to say things that we may not always know how to say, but we sometimes feel too. Just look at verses 3 to 4. 
The enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me sit in darkness like those long dead. We don't know the enemy that David is speaking of here. Maybe he's talking about Saul chasing after him, uh, forcing him to live in caves right in the dark. Uh, maybe, maybe David is speaking of the devil crushing him down in doubt and despair. Maybe, maybe the enemy is just his own sinful self, his addictions, his fears, his failures as a father. Have you felt buried? in a dark place this way before? It's not child's play. The enemy doesn't just want you to have a bad day. He wants your life. You're in a battle and you need to tap an SOS to the Lord. David goes on in verse 4. He continues to describe his feelings. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. He's Describing himself as paralyzed by what's going on. <clears throat> we feel this way too, right? We, we just don't always know how to say it sometimes. And, you know, some of us may embrace these kinds of descriptions uh, about ourselves. Others of us may feel kind of uncomfortable or awkward describing our feelings the way that David does here. We like things to be a bit more impersonal and sanitized. But when you're talking to the Lord, why keep up the walls? Use David's words to be honest with the Lord about what it feels like to be where you are. A second piece of David's plea is remembering. Remembering. And we see this specifically in verse 5. Okay, verse Verses 5 and 6, they really slow down David's prayer, uh, almost to a pause. In fact, many scholars think that the word selah there at the end of verse 6 uh, was a marker that told someone who was singing this psalm to pause at this point. Uh, it's the uh, exact middle of the psalm, and then you can see verse 7 sort of uh, launches the momentum back with, with uh, answer me quickly, O Lord. But you see, we need to be slowed down when we're desperate. And that's what David does here. He stops and remembers. And he's persistent. He doesn't just give it a try. He remembers, and then he meditates, and then he ponders. It's like, you know, three speed bumps in a row, slowing the, the car down. It's like, breathe, man. You were hyperventilating there for a couple of minutes when he was getting going, right? Honesty can get us sort of stuck in a prison of, of self-preoccupation, anxiety, worry about our circumstances, and we need to get the bigger picture in order to escape. We always need more perspective. And you can see how this experience of slowing down and remembering changes David. He's more focused after it. Um, he, he, he knows what, he, he, what to do. In, in verse 6, right, he, he actually physically reaches out to the Lord there. And then in the, in the second half of the psalm, we begin to see hope. And we'll talk more about that. 
But if you feel alienated from the Lord, distant, unknown by Him, unheard by Him, this is one of the ways you grow close again. Remember, meditate, ponder His acts throughout time in your life in the lives of his people throughout time and then you know look look at the book of nature all around you right Jesus told his worried disciples his anxious disciples to look at the sparrows to consider the lilies the flowers okay thirdly humility David shows humility we've we've seen this a bit already um in his beginning plea for mercy, right, that showed humility, as well as his honesty. But I also want you to just think about verse 6, okay? In verse 6, he says, I stretch out my hands to you. What does that behavior say? Right, he says, SOS, I need your help and nothing else can help me. It, it's a place of vulnerability to, because, you know, when you stretch out your hands, you, you, could get, you, could left hang, you could get left hanging there, or you could even fall over, perhaps, entirely. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, like my youngest, uh, Kezia. Maybe, maybe a few of you have seen her trying to walk recently. She's been learning to walk, and she can walk a few steps with her arms outstretched. But then if, if you or a couch are not there to catch her, she falls. And you can actually see her think about it. Uh, she sort of stands and wavers and sort of uh, looks around like, okay, where is a reasonable landing place here? And then when she's decided, okay, this person is closest, she heads, she heads for them. Uh, David here has stopped, remembered, pondered, and decided that God is a good landing place. And so he reaches out to him. Or, or think about the second image here in verse 6 too. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. A parched land, right? Parched land makes its need obvious. There are giant cracks that open up in the land. The land is, is visibly begging for water, saying, you know, fill me. Uh, parched land is not trying to look good or, or manage the problem on its own. Parched land says, SOS, we need water. That's how the Christian must seek the Lord. To say the things that David says here and, and mean them, that can be very humbling. You're showing your need. Maybe some of you feel uncomfortable at the thought of describing yourself as parched land. Or, you know, stretching out your hands to the Lord. That does not feel comfortable to you. That's what babies do. But listen to me. Taking that step is what moves someone who is a Christian in name only to someone with real faith and a real God. You need to decide if Christianity is just what you do or this is real to you. We see more humility in the second half of the psalm, beginning at verse 7. As David, he begins to ask God for guidance. Okay, this is new in this psalm. 
Uh, many of us in times of trouble, we, you know, we quickly look to our own wisdom. We want to figure out how, what to do in this mess, and we look to ourselves, our own wisdom. And, and it is good to use your brain, absolutely. But where do you begin? What are the values and the foundation and the rules that guide your decisions? And are you teachable? The loudest voice in your life must always be God's word. You need an authority in your life. That's not you. That's not some, you know, great scholar out there somewhere. What better authority than one who knows all things, cannot lie, and is entirely good? There is no better authority to submit to. So just follow along with David's thought process here as he talks about guidance. Verse 8b. Okay, he says, uh, make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. He, he's asking for some specific direction here uh, within his situation, whatever it is. Maybe, right, so let's just say, maybe David is in a dark cave hiding from Saul. And so the, the questions in his head are, you know, do I keep hiding here? Uh, do I go out, fight Saul? Do I uh, leave the land of Israel? Do I you know, appeal to Saul for justice? Do I try to find a mediator that will work things out between us? These, these are the questions, the practical questions he's dealing with in his life, and he's asking God for wisdom with that. And then in verse 10, he continues to ask for guidance. He says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. David doesn't just want to know what way to go. He wants his way to be in line with God's will for his life. Okay, that's important. This request for direction that he begins to make in the second half of the psalm is not about self-fulfillment. It's about God-fulfillment. That's his concern. And, and then finally, he continues in verse 10b. He says, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. He needs a path he wants it to be God's path, but he also knows he needs to be led on that path because he wanders. David's requests here are filled with humility. The shepherd and the king who has led many humbly recognizes he himself needs a shepherd and a king. This is the humility the Lord delights to respond to. But now finally, we also see hope in David's plea. Hope. He says in verse 8, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. He expects the night to end. He expects the morning to arrive. That's hope. We also see hope in the request for guidance that we just looked at. David is seeking something to do. He's not so down in the dumps that he can't even contemplate a next step. He's, he's asking for that next step. He, he assumes and expects this is going to be a path. He's going to have to walk. It's not going to happen immediately. Uh, he will need to be taught. He's not going to get airlifted out. And, you know, even his own actions are part of of God's answer in his life. He's asking for wisdom about that step. This is realistic hope, but it's real 
hope. The fact that he is praying at all shows he has hope. But we should notice that his hope has grown throughout his prayer. He didn't start out looking for that next step. He started out describing the darkness of his situation and asking for mercy. He worked his way to this point through prayer, through remembering, through pondering, through meditating. Maybe this is the encouragement that you need to not give up on prayer. To take these psalms that we've been looking at each week and to pray them. But as you pray them, you should also reflect on the confidence of David's plea. So let's look at my third point now. The confidence. The confidence of the plea. There are two things that David appeals to for confidence as he makes his plea. He's got two reasons why he thinks God should listen to his SOS message. First, because of who God is. God's character. Uh, throughout the prayer, and, and especially at the beginning and at the end, um, David refers to God as a God of faithfulness, of righteousness, and steadfast love. Okay, so God is uh, faithful in the same way that when you throw a ball up in the air, it always comes back down. In the same way that, that when the sun sets, it always rises the next day. In the same way that when the warmth leaves during the winter, it always comes back in the spring. In fact, these things around us are only faithful because God made them that way and keeps them that way. Who better to call out to than one who is that faithful and promises to hear you and help you? God is righteous. That means he's completely good in every way. Uh, it's tough to find a comparison for that, but maybe think of it this way. If, if you touch water, you will always get wet. You know that, right? If you reach out your hand to the Lord, you will always find him to be good. And he is also loving. One theologian says that God's love means he, he gives of himself to others in order to bring about their blessing. He gives of himself in a general way to the entire world. And he gives of himself in a special way to his chosen people. That's actually the love that David is talking about here, right? He refers to his steadfast love, which is specific to God's people. This means that when you open your hand to him, in true faith, resting on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, he will always fill it. Indeed, he is always filling it. He, he's not a, a vending machine. He, he, he may not fill it in the exact way you determine you would like your hand filled, but he will fill it. But of course, you know, the reason that all these truths about God matter to David is because he has a relationship with God. He has a relationship with God, which is the second thing that he looks to for confidence as he makes his plea. And, and the word he especially uses to describe this relationship here is servant. Uh, 
Twice he calls himself the Lord's servant in verse 2, and then right at the very end, uh, he says, verse 12, you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for or because I am your servant. In other words, David is confident God will deliver him because he is God's servant. Maybe you've seen the cop movie, uh, there's lots of them, where the rookie youngster gets assigned to the veteran pro cop. Uh, or, or, or maybe they're secret agents or they're ninja warriors. It doesn't matter. It's always the exact same story. The veteran is super annoyed at having this rookie tag along with him, and so he constantly discourages him. Uh, but eventually, right, the rookie gets himself into deep trouble, and then the vet sweeps into action and, you know, demolishes the bad guys and saves the rookie. And, you know, during that whole process, he decides, okay, this rookie's actually not so bad after all, right? How much more will the Lord save his servants whom he is not annoyed by, but delights in? Or if you haven't seen one of those movies... Maybe you remember the Gibeonites from the book of Joshua. I've mentioned them before because my son is named after the Gibeonites. Uh, they, they tricked Israel into making this deal with them. And, you know, when Israel figured out about it, they were pretty upset about it. But <clears throat> they say, okay, we're going to keep this deal. You guys can stay around here as our servants. <clears throat> well... The surrounding nations hear what the Gibeonites have done, and they are not happy about this, so they all get together to go crush the Gibeonites. And look, this is Israelites' chance to get rid of these tricksy servants. But the Gibeonites cry out, hey, guys, remember, we're your servants, help us, please. And Israel does. They march all night long, they come and they save the Gibeonites. If even the Israelites who broke many promises w wouldn't break their commitment to their servants who they had no good reason to care for, how much more will God be faithful to protect his servants whom he loves? You see, servants lose some of their rights, right? They are not the ones in charge. But they gain something too. They gain the protection of their master. Neither are you in poor company to call yourself a servant of the Lord, since Abraham, Moses, uh, Joshua, uh, Hannah, Samuel, uh, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Mary, and of course Jesus were all called a servant of the Lord. So can you call yourself? a servant of the Lord. Do you have the confidence to make a plea like David here in Psalm 143? It's the easiest job in the world to get, but many will be too proud to accept it. To be a servant of the Lord, you don't have to crush a job interview. 
You don't have to be Mother Teresa. You don't have to start a nonprofit that saves people from starvation. You don't have to become a traveling evangelist or a missionary pilot. You may not even be a very good parent or child or friend. Maybe no one else would be willing to work with you and your mess. But God will. Because the first step to becoming his servant is letting him serve you by giving you his son Jesus as your savior. It is Jesus' service to you that gives you the confidence throughout your life that with his help, you can be a servant of the Lord. So start there. Start with the service of Christ for you and return there often. And he will teach you to submit over time. Maybe someday you will be a missionary pilot. But if you truly accept Jesus as your Savior, your shepherd, your king, what you will always be, no matter what, is a servant of the Lord with the right to call upon him for help. Let's pray. Lord, we do call upon you for help. We ask you, you'd be with us. We make a plea to you, like David, through Christ, right? Lord, we ask because you are merciful. We know we can't ask because we've done something great. We ask on the basis of your mercy, which is shown to us through Jesus, that you would be with us, Lord, that you would save us from the darkness of our sin, from the darkness of our enemies, Lord, the world, the flesh, the devil. Lord, that you would guide us. We need your guidance. We need to know the way to go, Lord, and we want it to be your way, conformed to your will. Lord, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, who served us by dying for us and by living for us. We pray that we would trust in him, that we might also be servants of the Lord. We pray this 